0: As the world is writing a new story of global kinship, Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Rev. Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. Hello friends and neighbors, welcome. To a new format for the Postmodern Missionary podcast called Disruptions in Church History. So this is our second installment in which we will be discussing what happened after the Germanic invasion and the fall of the Western Roman Empire. That feels like, like a lot, it kind of is, but we're gonna get into it. Um, so just to remind you why we're doing this, many people have requested that I add a teaching component on here in addition to my interviews, which has been in the works for a while, honestly. I had a bunch of other themes planned. and. And then Corona happened and all of our lives and the church and the whole world have been disrupted by the Rona. So instead I decided to take the opportunity to see what certain episodes in history might teach us about how to handle this disruption. So here we are with a four part series on disruptions in church history. Now a few things you need to know. One. Each week, we will look at one disruption in church history, we will wade through what the disruption was, and then we'll ask the question of how the church responded to it. And you will find that sometimes the church handled what they were facing in a really positive and constructive and gospel-centered way, and then sometimes, not so much. (laughs) Number two. This is by no means an exhaustive list. It's just stuff that I have encountered over the course of my teaching and also just stuff that I'm interested in. Number three, and this one's important. um, I decided to do this topic before the most recent uprisings against police brutality in the US. And before we once again turned our attention to this very crucial and critical conversation about race and racism for our generation. And I don't know about you, but it feels to me like there are two disruptions going on now. However, I do think that this topic has something to say about this conversation too, the topic of disruptions in the church. Number four. I personally am doing my own spiritual work toward becoming truly anti-racist, and I have for a while now. I've kind of been slowly coming out um, in this work as I've learned more, and I do believe that this is central to being a postmodern missionary who doesn't ca- cause harm. But this podcast isn't directly about that, not directly about that. So um, my plan is to tell you how these disruptions were handled by sections of the church for good or for ill. And I know that there will be parallels that can be drawn between the stories I tell here and what we're facing together today. In fact, I'm going to have a hard time not preaching those parallels today, but I'm not going to make those connections on this podcast. Instead, I'm going to tell you what I know and let you and the Holy Spirit and maybe some friends do that work together. And maybe you'll share that with me on Instagram, all the other socials, because I'd love to hear what connections you're making. Now, my firm belief and conviction is that the church has to respond to the disruptions of today. Even if we don't respond, that is still a response. So maybe looking back will help us to look forward. Number five, and also this one's very important. I think it's going to be fun. I'm already having fun. I've I've enjoyed some of the responses that I've seen so far from the first episode. Um, I know it's kind of like nerdy fun, but it's still fun. So I really am super glad that you're here. So let's get going on number two. Our second topic is going to be the Germanic invasion from the North and the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. Now, before we get there, I, I kind of want to fill in some of the gaps um, that we are already kind of seeing about uh, Christian history. Um, most of Christian history is taught from a Western perspective, specifically connected to the Roman Empire and then the Roman Catholic Church. And the, the reason for that is because most of Christianity, that's encountered today by those of us in the United States, um, and even a lot of the global South and Europe has a direct line to this history of Christianity. But Christianity extended beyond the empire very quickly and significantly during this time. And so I want to share, share a little bit about what that looked like at the time before we get to our topic. And it's related. So get on board. Okay. Um, So Christianity spread east along the Syriac trade route. So there were Christians toward the east, even moving into India and Asia. There were Ethiopian Christians, which started out in Egypt and moved south. There were Christians in Persia. There were Christians in Ireland, where St. Patrick evangelized the Celts. Now, um, this this for me is an important piece of, um, of of our history. A lot of times working in Africa, uh, in West Africa and Sierra Leone, a lot of people think that this is like a Western religion. It's an American religion, it's a European religion, but that couldn't that be further from the truth. Um, in fact, most of our legacy, a lot of our legacy comes from Northern Africa. And um, a lot of the great thinkers that we go back to, including Augustine, are Northern Africans. Um, So these are African people. Africa had a a really strong influence in the formation of who we are today uh, across the entire world. Um, And that's an important piece of the history that I think sometimes gets lost. So the last group um, of people that were being evangelized at this time as Christianity is getting its footing over the first several centuries is the people north of the empire Um, Many people evangelized the, quote, barbarians. And the barbarians are who we turn our attention to today. The barbarians were considered any non-Romans who come from the Germanic tribes migrating from the far north. And we're going to talk more about that later. Um, Many of these barbarians were already Christians at this point because a sect of Christianity called the Arians had evangelized them. So let's talk quickly about the Arians. (laughs) The Arians were people, many of whom had been exiled from the empire because they believed that Jesus was not fully divine. There was a big argument about the nature of Christ. Was he human? Was he fully divine? Was he both? How does all that work? And the Arians believed that he was fully human and not fully divine, and they were considered Considered enemies to Nicene Christianity, which is the belief in the full divinity of Jesus Christ, which had become the Orthodox position is still the Orthodox position today. So, a lot of the people north of the Empire who we're going to talk about today were already evangelized by the Arian Christians, and many of them were already Christians um, with um, an Arian essentially bend. So, let's talk specifically about what happened, um, as the Roman empire collapsed and where that came from. So the Northern boundaries of the Roman empire were the Rhine and the Danube river rib ribbers. <laughs> oh, y'all. I'm living with my sister and her son, uh, mixes up V's and B's. <laughs> so I'm starting to talk like him. <laughs> because it's adorable y'all it's adorable um but my english is suffering (laughs) so i'll say that again there's two rivers on the um the northern boundaries of the roman empire and those rivers assisted rome in keeping the barbarians out um the barbarians who were trying to essentially penetrate into rome because that's essentially what people did at that time they were trying to come in and take over land and uh the the rivers help them to keep them out but between 370 and 500 ce the roman empire is kind of weakening and the barbarians begin to invade and take over in the fifth century they completely overran the west part of the roman empire they sacked rome in 410 and then in 476, a chieftain named Odoacer, I think, um, that's how you pronounce it, he came in and d- deposed the Western emperor and established states of their own. Now, who were these barbarian? They were Germanic tribes who had migrated from far north. So let me share you a little, with you a little bit of history that, um, I found really interesting over the last year of teaching Christian history to um, my students in Sierra Leone. I I try really hard to learn as much as I can from an African perspective and teach it that way as well, uh, which is where someone like me has a, in some ways a deficiency. I have to overcome the fact that I'm not from there. And um, one of the things that I have read was from a missionary who taught history, Christian history in Nigeria for a very long time. His name was Boer or bear. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. Um, But I sort of taught it the way he taught it as a way of helping uh, my students understand. And this is history that I did not learn early on, um, but I want to impart it to you because I think it's interesting. So the history of the Teutons or Germans is very much like the history of the Bantu tribes in Central Africa. And my students knew immediately who the Bantu tribes were and all of that. And any of my African friends listening will, will know. Um, so the Bantu tribe started in Congo, which is essentially central. Africa and what happened was over hundreds of years they spread east they spread west north and south and I'm going to quote him here because he explains it very well essentially the process of tribes becoming nations becoming you know that sort of thing um, strengthening and then separating out so this is what happened quote stronger tribes drove out weaker ones Distinct languages and customs developed. Separate states with their own laws and areas of influence came into being. And interestingly enough, the word Bantu from Bantu means people, which is also the word for Teuton to refer to the Germanic tribes from the word tooth, which means people. Um, So, The Bantu tribe, for example, like there are tribes in Zimbabwe that have history from the Bantu tribes. There are tribes in uh, Tanzania, Um, like Swahili. um, That language comes from a Bantu language. Um, So uh, Tanzania and Kenya, I keep forgetting that name. Um, And then Congo and and Central Africa, all the way up um, west and north toward where we are um, in Sierra Leone. So essentially this is the way that tribes kind of develop. So the Germanic tribes in the same way during the time of Abraham, between Abraham and King David, they lived in the far north of present day Europe and they were hunter gatherers who later became farmers. They had no written language and were thus very far behind Egypt, Babylon and Syria. And the tribes began to migrate from the north around Around 1,000 BCE. So they've been migrating a long time. And eventually they landed in places that form some of what is modern European nation states, with many of the names corresponding to the original Germanic tribes. So for example, the Angles become the English. The Franks become the French, right? So all during this time, the Roman Empire is growing. But as Rome is being established, the Germanic tribes also grew in strength. The Visigoths in particular played an important role and they sought to penetrate Rome from the inside. And this caused Rome to remove its troops from its border which allowed other Germanic tribes to cross the river and essentially take over. So in 405 CE, the invasion of Italy happened. In 407, the invasion of the barbarians really began in earnest. They went across the Rhine River over the Belgian, Gaelic, and Spanish provinces. They settled in these areas and honored the established government little, if at all. In 410, Rome was captured by the Goths. By the end, almost every province in the Western Roman Empire was taken uh, was taken over, including the Northern African provinces. So this, essentially, they succeeded in bringing the Roman Empire in the West to an end. And they settled into areas that were once part of the Empire now they did end up speaking languages that were derived from Latin from the Latin of the Western Empire area and um, those languages essentially formed what are most of the Latin based languages that you hear today including the language that I'm speaking right now so all of that happened over the course of time the Empire of the East, uh, later called the Byzantine Empire, lasted another thousand years. So the entire Roman Empire didn't wasn't taken over; it was just in the West. Um, and the Church in the East experienced relative unity and peace, although it was under the strong authority of the Empire. But in the West, now the Church is reeling. What do we do? They um, they have had invaders from outside um, essentially coming in and, um, and now they're just completely essentially at a loss and they have to regroup and start again. Right. And so what we're going to do today is talk about the individual responses that you hear that you've, that happened during the time, but then also a couple of, um, the kind of systemic responses that the church had at that time. So stay with me. We're coming back. Okay, so at this point, the Western Roman Empire has collapsed. The barbarians from the outside, who did not have, um, weren't quite as sophisticated in terms of their organized culture, uh, were coming in, and um, the church had to reckon with this. Now, this wasn't very long after the the Roman Empire had become pretty much entirely Christian, officially Christian. Um, But even in that short time... Christianity and the Roman empire had become kind of intertwined in a lot of Christians thought process. Like I said, in the last podcast, um, a lot of Christians believed that, um, the Roman empire was essentially God's kingdom come on earth. Right? So now all of a sudden (laughs) that plan didn't work out. And what does that mean for, um, the Christians? So I want to share with you some responses. Um, Jerome, who was a great church, early church father, um, he, his response was this, just to give you an idea of the kind of pain that it caused. He, he wrote, almost in agony, he said, who could have believed that Rome, built by the conquest of the world, would fall? That the mother of many nations has turned to her grave. He writes, Augustine, who by the way was Northern African. Um, I have a, one of my best friends in Sierra Leone was like, whoa, wait a second, Augustine was African? <laughs> a lot of people don't know that, definitely African. A lot of our great um, thinkers were African. So um, Augustine's response was a little bit different. He begins to actually reimagine a theology that's not based on a time or place, but rather something bigger. And I'm going to quote R.P.C. Hansen, who writes about this. And he says, quote, in contrast to the city of this world, the Roman Empire, Augustine draws a parallel history of the civitas dei, the chosen people of God whose destiny is beyond this world, whose standards, values, and objectives are also quite different from those of the worldly city that is Rome. And this idea was so strong uh, that some historians say that the history of Christianity in the Middle Ages is a history of their attempt to build this civitas dei on earth, which is something that Augustine would not have approved of, as it turns out. (laughs) Um, So Augustine actually died right before his city Carthage was sacked. Um, So he saw Rome be sacked and then died not long after. Um, at the time, old pagans blamed the Christians as well. They said, well, this is your fault. Christians were shocked and dismayed. How could God allow the empire to just, who, who has just recently accepted Christianity to fall? Some saw it as a sign of the end times. Um, also, the barbarian invasions um, made the educational system of the Roman empire break down pretty much completely. And uh, their threefold structure um, of Indus, Grammaticus, and Ceased in ceased to exist. The church, um, which had up to that point entirely relied on that existing system, was forced to improvise its own system. Um, in order to educate their ordinance. And so by the second half of the fifth century, according to Hinson, um, clergy are increasingly the only educated, certainly the only well-educated people in the community. And and he says, quote, the barbarian ruler had no option but to employ them as his civil and diplomatic service. So the role of the church starts to become even more diplomatic in some ways. Missionary expansion almost came to a stop as society collapsed around them, but at the same time, acts of compassion increased because, because of the fact that most people law had lost their wealth, the dividing lines of rich and poor are become largely irrelevant anymore. And so acts of compassion, generosity for the poor, concern for the stranger, the sick, the prisoner were pretty much expected if you were going to be a church leader, um, they are expected to be champions of the lesser people to take care of the sick, the stranger and prisoner, to see that the dead are decently buried and to preach to the people. And um, they're even meant to be political champions of the community over which they preside. Another practice was ransoming prisoners. They even actually ransomed prisoners from the barbarians who had been captured by the barbarians, um, especially Christians in Gaul who um, ransomed prisoners from the Franks and other certain Christian leaders as well. And there's some evidence of increased concern for social justice, particularly the responsibility and egalitarian use of wealth. So now. We don't want to overstate those things, but you are starting to see those sorts of movements in some individuals as this change is taking place. Um, So those are kind of individual things that we see scattered throughout. Um, But then the church itself had to pivot again in a systemic way. And there are two ways in which they do that that we're going to talk about next. The first is um, monasticism, of course, our wonderful monasticism that tends to come in and save the day. And then the second is the papacy. So stick with us. We're going to get to that next. The western half of the Roman Empire has been sacked by the barbarians of the north. They're intermingling. I mean, these barbarians have come in. They've set up pseudo-governments, and um, they're intermingling and living essentially side by side, and um, it's been overtaken and overrun. And at this point, uh, the church has to kind of respond to the disruption that's literally straight in front of them. How are they going to um, work in this new reality and this new situation? And at this point, there was monasticism in the West. We talked about that last time. And... um, this monasticism was one of two church institutions that provided the unity and stability in this very tumultuous region. So essentially, the monastics essentially kind of stepped in and stepped up, right? So let's talk about that. The Western form of monasticism was slightly different than what you see in the East and Egypt and Syria. Uh, Western monasticism was more practical. Uh, It did punish the body, but it was really as a training for mission rather than simply a punishment for sin. Um, Western monasticism was also more communal. You had a lot more people living in community rather than by themselves. And it also... um, It didn't have to live in tension with the organized church, but it was actually uh, like, it wasn't separate from the organized church. It actually was a partner to the popes and the bishops and the other leaders. So where there was like this great separation in the East, there's a lot more working together in the West. So during this time, Benedict of Nursia. Um, is the main figure who essentially helps to organize a Western form of monasticism, and um, in some ways in response to what's happening, and um, other ways because um, you know essentially is maybe the Holy Spirit and, and his own giftedness, right? Um, and it's influenced monasticism even to this day. I used to go and do spiritual retreats at a Benedictine monastery. I loved it. So Benedict was born in 430 in Italy under the Ostrogoth rule the Austri- rule of the Ostrogoths. And he begins his monastic life as a hermit like monks in the desert. But later he formed a communal monastery. And his greatest contribution was, quote, the rule, which was a short ordering of life through discipline that lacked the harshness of extreme asceticism. For, so for example, unlike the Eastern monks, Benedictine communities got to eat two meals per day rather than just the one. <laughs> So here's the two crucial kind of theological and practical elements that um, made Benedictine monasticism what it was. And I'm just gonna say ding, 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 ding. I see a lot of parallels here um, in terms of something that we can learn. Um, So the, the two crucial elements were stability and obedience. So stability meant that you stayed in the monastery that you originally joined for the rest of your life right so if you were going to join a monastery you better be sure that you want to stay in that monastery forever <laughs> because um, unless there were just really strange circumstances you weren't moving um, so if you did not like the people that you were with too too bad right um, and this gives some stability to the region because cities are changing hands rapidly back and forth back and forth and there's all this uncertainty and so the, the monasteries were stayed Stable, 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 same people, same leadership, same, same practices, same ideas, right? So first stability. Second one is obedience. Um, And obedience meant to the rule itself, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but also to the abbot or the father. Now the rule insisted on physical labor and prayer eight times a day, which became known as the divine office. And they produced a lot of agriculture for the community, which led to economic stability as well. They also copied books and taught community members. Um, so this is a rule that spread throughout the West and continues to be used today. There's a stability that comes in uh, the new ben- Benedictine order. Um, and that stability is economic, it's educational, it's communal, and, and um, in many ways, they, they were the educators of the community um, because they, you know, they kind of guarded the old ways, right? So that's number one, the monastic community. Number two is the papacy, which means the Pope. So the papacy is the second church institution which brought stability to the West. Um, Now, let me give you some of the history of the idea of the Pope. Um, At first, the word Pope, which means father, was simply used to describe important bishops. But eventually, the word became used to describe the Bishop of Rome, Um, although the East continued to use it a little bit more liberally. So the origins of the Roman papacy aren't exactly clear. However, it is believed that Peter, who is considered to be the first pope, visited Rome and probably died there. And Rome was a less important ecclesial and theological city than others in the East and North Africa at the time. Um, The numbers were... In the eastern part of the empire and most of the important thinkers in the west um tertullian cyprian and augustine were from north africa like i said but it was after the germanic invasion that rome becomes an important city in church and politics the church becomes essentially the guardian of what was left of civilization and culture and and the most prestigious bishop in the west rome's bishop becomes the focal point for regaining the unity that was lost in the invasions right so his role becomes even somewhat more political So Pope Leo the Great was the first pope in the modern use of the word, and he participated in theological debates and successfully interceded on behalf of Rome when it was under threat of new invasion. Um, And this is because the civil authorities were not able to step in. And so in this way, the role of pope becomes both spiritual and political, like I just said. And popes played um, parts in both promoting stability and making political maneuvers, be it for the people's good or for their own power, depending really on the Pope and the situation. In addition, Leo believed that Jesus made Peter and his successors the, quote, rock on which the church would be built, which is a biblical reference. Therefore, the Bishop of Rome, Peter's successor, was the head of the church. So this and later popes often acted not only as heads of the church but also of Rome itself. And so later on, Pope Gregory the Great uh, is another pope who greatly influenced the papacy. It was he who promoted celibacy among the clergy. He would form a theology of purgatory. He would send missionaries to England and intervene in conflicts in present-day Europe and northern Africa. So the takeaway here is that the papacy helped to stabilize the region during Great flux, but also gained great political power in the process, right? Um, I I, I just want to start preaching now. I want to give you all the parallels, but I can't. Um, So, you guys let me know what you think. Um, So, it would take centuries to rebuild much of what was destroyed, including roads and cities and aqueducts, but not only that, also arts and humanities. And the church provided much of the stability and continuity. And this is from Gonzales. He says, quote, it became the guardian of civilization and of order, end quote. Now, the other piece of that is many of the Germanic invaders are already Aryan Christians, like I said. But slowly there's this other orthodox power, right? Um, And slowly they adopted the Orthodox kind of Trinitarianism. So essentially over time, Arianism gave way to Orthodox Trinitarianism. And those who had not yet been Christian um, were kind of evangelized into the faith as well. So we're starting to see the movement um, toward a quote, Christian society. So that's what I have to share with you today. That's the story. Um, there's a lot there. And, um, so I want to invite you to let me know what you think, like, tell me what parallels you see and what you're kind of thinking on it. So, um, you can email me, you can, um, respond on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places, and you can find all that information at postmodernmissionary.com postmodernmissionary.com so we're halfway through now our series on uh, disruptions in the church next week we're going to get to an actual pandemic um and have a conversation about what the church did during that pandemic um I'll tell you it'll 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 be uh, you'll feel some feelings about it probably (laughs) um so I hope you come back um in the in the next kind of installment that's coming um And I hope that you let me know what you're thinking about, uh, what we've done so far. Um, I'd love to hear where you're drawing those parallels and what sort of takeaways that you've got. So, um, yeah, find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the places, and you can do that via postmodernmissionary.com. I love you guys. Y'all are wonderful. Um, and I hope to hear from you.